everybody, this is Sarah Benincasa, and welcome back to another episode of Well, This Isn't Normal, the podcast where we talk about our lives and times and what we consider to be normal and what we consider to be abnormal and the interesting places between. Our definition of normal is ever-changing, ever-evolving, sometimes seemingly useless and sometimes quite helpful. (laughs) A lot of times we use normal as a synonym for healthy. Other times it's not a synonym for healthy at all. It's a synonym for familiar. And I was really glad to get to talk to my friend Julia Rossi, who I've probably known for 13, 14 years since we were both stand-up comedians in, in New York City. And she is now living out here in Los Angeles, California, Still a stand-up comic, a successful lady, and she is pregnant, and her husband, Will Miles, is like her, an actor and a comedian and a super talented individual. It was really great to get to talk to Julia about a lot of different things in a relatively short period of time. And I just think she's a really neat, funny spitfire of a gal. So I hope you enjoy our chat. You can support the podcast at patreon.com slash Casa. And thank you so much to our patrons. You help me pay Engineer Jonathan. And you help me keep the lights on. And um, particularly at a time when I've had speaking engagements cancel uh, in the past few months, obviously, because of COVID-19, I particularly appreciate the Patreon supporters, as well as the opportunity to get to know you all a bit better. Feel free to email me at sarah at sarahbenincasa.com. Definitely feel free to send me messages if you're a Patreon supporter, patreon.com slash sarahbenincasa. And let's get to know Julia Rossi. And afterwards, I will take you through a little breathwork exercise. Talk to you soon. I don't know why I'm (laughs) saying it like some sort of a full weirdo, except that I am a full weirdo. (laughs) Anyway, enjoy. I'll talk to you soon. Well, everybody, I'm so excited to bring in to the virtual world of, well, this isn't normal. My friend of many years, Miss Julia Rossi. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm very good. You know, I would, I would describe you as, and I'm probably going to miss some career labels, but I would describe you as a stand-up comedian, actress, writer. Um, what else am I missing? Because I feel like I'm missing things. <laughs> TV writer, some... you've you've written for TV here yes. and there. I feel like yes, I have. Yeah, um, I guess that's about it. Sometimes, sometimes I direct. I've been directing some solo shows over the last few years. Oh, that's so cool! Yeah, I really enjoy helping people like craft their individual stories. So I guess that um, that's enough. It's a lot. I mean, that's in <laughs> any one of those things is a lot. <laughs> Do you feel more comfortable um, if you if you're performing, right? Do you feel more comfortable on camera um, or 
on stage, or I suppose I should say a combination because you've also done work on stage that has been on the TV. So like what, but what's your, what, what's your gut? Like if money weren't an object and you could just do it whenever the fuck you wanted and be paid a zillion dollars, like, but you could only pick one. You could be live theater performance, solo performance, stand up, or you could act on TV. Like, which would you pick? Gosh, um, Man, it really depends what mood I'm in. I mean, I love live performing. I think there's nothing like it. However, I hate going out at night. Um, yeah, going so, out is trash. Having to go yeah. outside is annoying. <laughs> yeah, uh, at night, especially at, at night. And um, uh, But then on camera, I love... Well, I love collaborating. So, okay, how about this? If it's me alone, stage. If it's me interacting with other people, camera. That's fun. I like it. It's a nuanced answer. Yeah. Like did <laughs> did you tr- like wait? You went to school. You went to college with um, Margot Lightman. Yes. Curry, right. And what were you a bard? What school were you at? We're at Ithaca. At Ithaca. Okay. I I was getting an upstate New York. That's like actually upstate New York. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> did you train in theater there? Or like, did you know you wanted to be a performer? You know, I man, I went in and I. I applied to schools for theater. I <laughs> applied for schools for theater and for communication, not really knowing what I wanted to do. And then uh, I was a theater BA major, but I got to be honest, like didn't really get anything out of it. So then I added a sociology double major. Whoa. And I feel like I got a lot more because our school had a huge BFA acting program. And so they were the ones that got to do like the actual intense acting classes. Whereas as a BA, you take like one acting class a semester and then the rest of your classes are like theater history and costume design. And, you know, that wasn't, I was like, but how do I get on television? You know, that's what I thought college would help me do. <laughs> um, and <laughs> well, then I also, got- also like, uh, just to, to, sorry to interrupt for a second. I found that there are hierarchies. I mean, I went to, I majored in writing literature and publishing at Emerson and I dropped out. And then later I got my degree in creative writing at Warren Wilson College. But what I found from talking to people, because I didn't study theater or performance, is that there is a hierarchy within, and I'm sure it's true in other fine arts programs, like there, like I bet the BFA students got more attention and got more, you know, access to certain resources. And that doesn't mean that you were kicked to the side, but, um, sometimes that even translates to eventually those alumni networks being stronger. Like it sort of depends, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think if I had to do it all over again, I I wish I tried harder to maybe get into the television program because they have an amazing communications program. Um, but I, but my sociology degree, I feel like is actually what I use the most. I, I might not necessarily use it in the sense of it giving me any like skill, like, you know, it didn't give me skills, but I refer to things I learned in sociology to this day, especially like in this time. I was thinking, especially now, like, oh my God, as I saw a a lovely picture of you taking uh, your daughter to her first protest. I mean, she's Mm -hmm. inside, she's inside you currently. I should specify (laughs) that she's currently on the inside. Um, But I mean, I feel I didn't study Soch, but I feel like it must give you a certain framework or at least like 
an ability to understand maybe some conversations in a new way or to see well, it in context. Yeah, like it it informed my comedy a lot because I with the theater major, like I remember I remember the exact moment. It was my sophomore year of college and I was in like a black box studio play. And the second night of the play, my head, I was like, I don't want to say this again. Like, I'm like, just like, (laughs) I love it. Yeah. Like, I just like wasn't into the, the words, you know? Um, And so that's when I started like kind of exploring like, oh, what are some things like, and I, at the time I thought stand up was just getting up and talking. I didn't realize that also became repetitive at a certain point. At least there's room for, you know, improvising. It's not like another actor is dependent on you. So a lot of my comedy came from like my sociology education. Like I really wanted to use comedy as like a tool to like connect and change. And, you know, obviously I've kind of gone off and on. You can't, not that you can't, but like, I would never say my entire career has been on that path because I also like to just make poop and dick jokes, you know? Um, but <laughs> but if in between those jokes, I can interweave some knowledge or insight. And even now, like I, you know, I'm not performing. No one really is or working. And I definitely am like, you know, I'm going to use my platform as much as I can to like get information and knowledge out there. So yeah. I remember um, one thing that I've seen you talk about on stage in stand-up, because I probably first saw you do stand-up, I would guess, in probably like 2007 or 2006. Would that make yeah, sense? Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. Because I started in, and I don't really do stand-up anymore. Um, but Nobody I, does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, true. But uh, I think it was... Um, I started in early 2006. And so, but one thing, a a theme I've seen you return to, which I really love, is what it's like to be the kid of immigrants. And it's interesting in the audience when you do those jokes and stories to see how it cuts across lines. Like I can look at Mm. people who present differently to me because they have different skin colors, right? But you can tell right away when there are people in the audience who are first generation American kids because they laugh in a specific way when you do those jokes. Like, a, yeah, there's a there's that laughter of relating, which is mm-hmm. really like cool. Did you were you ever afraid of what your parents would say? Because when I started doing stand up, this is divorced in a sense from the the immigrant parent thing. I was just like, oh, what are my parents going to say? Like, are they going to freak out? Um, yeah, yes and no. I mean, not really, because they're like, they're really funny and they are definitely in that category of people who are like, don't talk about me, but are you talking about me? Yes, you know? and yes, exactly. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had more trouble, I think, maybe now as I've gotten like more mature in my career where I've wanted to maybe be less jokey about being the child. Because like, I think when I first started, this is probably even before I met you, like it was very... I think the crutch of some of that material was like the mom Italian accent and, you know, like I kind of played into that more. And then as I've matured, I've wanted to talk more about like, you know, family dynamics and abuse and, you know, mental health and like all that kind of stuff. And so, um, but yeah, I agree. I mean, one thing about being first generation is like, it really, it doesn't matter where your parents come from. There's so many similarities there. And I've had this conversation so many times where like, it's interesting to be a first generation kid, especially when you're 
Caucasian because it's not so obvious that maybe you were raised kind of different, but like, I don't fully, okay, how do I explain this? I don't think I'm going to say this in a way that I'm going to enjoy. So I think American, okay, Americans or American culture, American experience is just really unfortunately considered white American mm-hmm. experience, right? I, I don't, I'm not saying that, but that's what, you know. Yeah, well, that's, that's the dominant the dominant culture that decides what we get to see, what we get to watch, what we get to hear is is white. And that's, you know, built into it. And I guess white, I mean, I guess when I think all American, I've been brainwashed to think blonde. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I blonde, had... blue eyes. But that's also yeah. what, we, what we've been shown. Like, I was listening to this audiobook, which isn't read by the author, but that book, White Fragility, that um, mm-hmm. people have been recommending a lot. And it's recommending for years. And I finally was like, okay. And it's by an Italian girl named Robin D'Angelo, who I don't think talks like that. Um, and I was listening to it. And and one of the things she says is like, white is the default. Like, she's like, if I told you I was out to brunch with my friend, Amanda, you would assume Amanda was white because I'm a white lady and I just called her my friend Amanda. But I would probably say I was out to lunch with my friend Amanda, my friend Diane, my black friend, you know, Tina. Like it was just interesting how she talks about it, how we're taught if you grow up in the U.S. of A, especially I'm sure if you go to public schools, which I did, but you, you know, we're taught to assume like American equals white. That's it's, yeah. it's, it's a brainwashing that starts from when we're really little. I can't remember who said it, but I remember watching this um, clip of this black man. I really wish I could remember where it was. And I feel so bad if it's very obvious, but he was saying how when you, oh my God, it was at a talk that I did. It was at this like film panel thing that I was at. It was a guy in the audience. That's why I'm like, why can't I remember what video it's like? Oh, sometimes you see things in real life too. Um, not everything <laughs> we do get to be sh- with people, <laughs> which I forget. Yeah, um, but he, we were because uh, I, I did this panel on cancel culture, and because um, this this someone did a film on it. Anyways, this guy in the audience, I, I don't even know how it got to this topic, but in, he said, um, you know, when people say like uh, African American. Um, Asian American, you're already, that is perpetuating this assumption that American means white and then everything, Armenian American, I mean, like anything, you could like say it for a lot of categories. It's like, why do you have to add the thing if we're all American? He Mm, said it much more eloquently than I am. But my point is, is that what's been really interesting with the whole immigrant culture thing is like my experience growing up I remember as a kid being like, not feeling like I related to the, what I called them like white, white kids. Mm-hmm. Like I know I'm white, but the white, white My kids. mom called them American. Because yeah, that's what her, American. Yeah. That's what her grandparents called them. Like yeah, that's what my parents did. And they would have different kinds of food for depending on who came over or yeah. like, you know, you would go, oh, they're like, you know, oh, that he's American. So his, um, you can't give him like the spicy sauce. Like literally, yeah. it would just be like, oh yeah, we got to make sure this guest doesn't get diarrhea. <laughs> ours is usually, ours is usually like an eye roll of like, oh, 
And then again, when we would go to like a party and they only had like one appetizer, yeah. you know, like, ah, oh, these stupid Amerigan, you know, like they don't know how to feed you. It's a so, waspy kind of thing because it's, it's like wasps or like, yeah, there is. And there are different, um, different, you know, people will say like, well, my great grandparents were discriminated against because they were Irish. And it's like, okay, but were you? Like, there's whiteness changes. Like, whiteness is, you know, a construct. And it depends over time who gets to be white changes. Like, who gets to be called oh, yeah. white? Yeah. You would, did you see the PBS four part documentary series called The Italian Americans? No. Oh, you would love it. I need it. to watch it. I think it's on Amazon. I cried. I felt very understood. It like really explained why Italians like trust no one, but it talks about how they were treated in the early 1900s and they were discriminated against and all that stuff. And, and although that's all true, I don't use that as like a, well, I struggle just as much as, you know, like, cause that's not true. However, it is so fucked up that like so many Italians old school Italians grow up to be racist. And I think a lot of it is rooted in they want to make sure they're not, because you you punch to a different level so mm-hmm. that you're not back in that level. You know what I mean? Like they don't, they don't want to be dragged down again. Yeah. They were at the bottom and then they got out from the bottom. So now they're like, well, who can I punch down to? And it's, yeah, this documentary is like, it was just really interesting. So oh anyways, that's a very long response to your thing of, Yes, I do love that the immigrant thing cuts across. It, it, it also, it, it usually cuts across that. It's usually people relate to it who are either children of immigrants or certain, I think, um, I don't know what it is, but like, I, I, I was going to say socioeconomic, but that's not it. Uh, I don't know what the word for it is. It might but- be like people who keep, like, for example, I'm not the kid of immigrants, um, and you know, it's just my mom's side that's Italian and Sicilian and Arab. Shh, don't talk about it. But, um, <laughs> but like, there are things that you talk about on stage that I related to specifically because not all of it, but some things, uh, it's like people whose families have held on to the old ways or to yeah. what, and, I, and I don't and I don't mean the old like I don't mean racism I mean the old tradition the old foods like old food ways the old um old, the old traditions yeah like old school like how they dress and how that you know it's it's like families that have resisted assimilation yeah a little bit a little bit like I feel like I just said a lot of things in the last five minutes that I don't even know if I really mean. They're kind of all over the place. <laughs> well, no, but it it makes sense, right? So we're saying that when you perform and you do jokes that are very much grounded in being an immigrant kid or immigrant, the child of immigrants, that there's certain like universal American first generation experiences that people relate to across lines, which is fascinating. And also there are other people who relate to it because they've got some traces of that left in the family. Yeah. Even if they're like second and third generation, but they maybe grew up with, you know, three generations of families living in the same house. Yeah. Multi-generational families will 
behave a little differently, right? Like, yeah. I was I was listening to um, Dr. Clarissa Pinkola Estes, who wrote Women Who Run With the Wolves, and she's a, a Jungian analyst, and she's probably in her 70s now. But um, so she was born to a mestizo family that was mixed Native American and Mexican-American family, and then was um, given up for adoption when she was an older child. I'm not sure how old she was, uh, but she went to live with a family of immigrants from Eastern Europe. And um, she, the house she was raised in was a way station after World War II for refugees. And she talks about how there was a divide in her family, her adopted family, her family. Her mother would say like, um, well, we're not like the people from the woods. And she was like, wait, what? We live in the woods in the Midwest. Like, what are you talking about? We live in the forest. And her mom was like, no, no, no. We're not like literally just 10 years apart. There was this. um, And in this household where they were helping refugees come here from their home country um, that I mean, people who had been through, you know, rape, trauma, starvation at the hands of occupying forces. And they obviously had empathy and love for them. But her mom was still like, no, 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 Clarissa, we don't behave like them because her generation had assimilated a little, just a little bit more. And they wanted to hold on to that. Yeah, it's really I don't I don't think like that. Like, I just don't have it in my brain, Um, but I understand it. And I think being raised the way that I was, I probably have a larger threshold for ignorance at times because I know, for example, with my parents, some of their ignorance has honestly just come from um, lack of verbal understanding. Mm-hmm. Like my yeah. mom to this day will call me and be like, Ma, what does uh, this word mean? And I'm like, oh yeah, don't, don't say that. Um <laughs> Because there's you know. nuance to it. You could give her the you could give her the literal meaning, but yeah. she might not know the nuance. That's why sometimes we fuck up when we go to, you know, visit different places and inadvertently, like whatever, make a joke that doesn't really land. Uh, or we just say the wrong thing because we don't know the like the cultural weight behind it. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, I I could talk about first generation stuff forever. Like it's truly I haven't figured out the the way I want to do it, but it's definitely my dream to like have a character that was raised the way that I was on screen. Um, probably the younger version of me, just because I think it's I, I just haven't seen it done the way I, I well, the one thing I've seen recently that kind of felt I felt connected to was um never have I ever. Did you I've see heard that good on? things. No, I didn't. Oh, it's great. It's by Mindy Kaling and it's about uh, an Indian American girl. And again, like, you know, I wasn't raised Indian American, but she, I, I, that was like finally a character that I felt related to. Cause the first thing I ever felt related to is my fat Greek wedding, except there wasn't enough violence and abuse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's not the reflection of the like, uh, yeah. smack the shit out of you. Why is nobody throwing a slipper at anyone? Like that's. It was like a a rounded edges version of, have you ever thought about hosting, first of all, yes, obviously, I think you should write this in a fictional way, but also have you thought about hosting like a talk show or something with somebody else who's also a first generation kid, maybe from a different like um, background and just, and and like maybe having on 
first or even second generation? Um, there's a great podcast. Actually, I just did it a few, like a month ago called Ethnic- Ethnically Ambiguous. Oh, you ever heard yeah, of it? I have yeah. heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. So they sort of, they they kind of cover that area. That's um, cool. But I, I did think about that years ago and then it just, you know, it, it went into the notebook and then lived there. Do you, yeah. I mean, I have so many ideas that I'm just like, am I ever going to have time to do that? Probably not. Um, yeah. How do you like, so during, obviously we're, we're in a stressful time for various reasons. I mean, this podcast started, I think we released the first episode March 16th. So um, it was daily and then eventually moved to weekly. Shout out to Patreon supporters for, uh, for paying engineer Jonathan. Appreciate you. But um you know, obviously things have changed. The things we're talking about have have changed. From the beginning, I wanted to talk about dealing with stress. And I yeah. wanted to offer options and solutions for how to deal with stress. And now, of course, that conversation is is more layered and nuanced because there's, depending on who I'm talking to, there are different ways of right experiencing the stress of the things that we're talking about. And I know that a lot of people are, are being re-traumatized um, by images of police violence that they've experienced themselves. And I actually want to tell you, I shared a story that you had tweeted about with my dad, and he shared it with some colleagues at work. You had tweeted about the experience of driving and having Black men who are passengers in your car, uh, including your future husband. And... Um, being pulled over by the police and like the cops made them get out of the car. Right. Did I get they, that? Correct? They made, so I was speeding on the highway. They made the cop came to the passenger side window where my now husband was sitting into the passenger back seat where our friend who both of them were black um, first had them put their hands on their head. Didn't have me do anything with my hands asked them where we were going, then had me get out of the car to ask me if I was okay. okay. And I, you know, with my fiery Italian (laughs) rage, (laughs) felt extremely angry and wanted to yell. But I'm really glad that I had the sense to remain somewhat calm but firm because if it got ugly... I don't think that even if I was the one yelling, I don't think I would have been the one in date. You know what I mean? Like it's anyways. So um, I was like, I don't understand like what, you know, he's like, well, you were speeding. And I was like, yeah, I go, but why did you do And He, I can't, I honestly, it was such a, I can't even remember like what he was trying to get at. He's like, well, you know, there's been some instances and sort of make, you know, and I was like, yeah, but that seems really racist. And he just like, you know, wrote the ticket and whatever. I just wanted to get out of there. Then I ended up calling the station, you know, a few days later. Can I speak to your man? That's when can I speak to your manager comes in handy. <laughs> yeah. uh, a, it's, it's Italian Karen jumped out. Yeah, Italian, Italian progressive Karen. Karina, Karina, yeah. Karina jumped Karina. out. Uh, and I was like, yeah, this is what happened. And the sheriff goes, well, you know, we've had um, a lot of sex trafficking going on of young girls in the area. Um, I was like, oh, how young? And he goes, you know... Um, like 16 to 23 or something. He's like, I was like, yeah, I'm 36. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, I'm flattered, um, but that's not what it was. Yeah. And so, you know, I'll give the guy credit. He listened. 
He claims to have taken a report. He claims that he was going to talk to the guy. He probably hung up and laughed and threw it in the garbage or drew a dildo while I was talking. I have no idea. Um, but yeah, it was, um, I, I, I'm not in the cat. Like I wasn't traumatized by it. I mean, if anything, I felt extremely guilty. And I think the saddest part was that their reaction, my husband and our friend was like, oh, that was actually like nothing compared to what we've gone through. And that's of course, when I like drove the rest of the way of the ride crying hysterically, uh, cause somehow I, you know, this is all my fault. And, um, yeah, I just, but I'm not glad that happened cause that shouldn't happen. But I do think when it does, I think me sharing it, probably somebody heard it that maybe wouldn't have heard it from a black person. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? There's, I always think I, the majority of my followers are white. I don't have an exact demographic breakdown, but I know that to be true. So, I mean, the ones that aren't robots and I do have, yes, I, there are followers who are not white, but most of them are white. And I know that I'm a white lady and that white people are used to listening to other white people as the source of authority. Um, excuse me, whether we realize it or not. And so that's why, excuse me, sharing something like that or retweeting things, it might get in front of somebody who wouldn't see it otherwise. And when I shared that story with my dad and he shared it at work because they were having a meeting to talk about things, mostly to listen so that black employees um, could talk about their experiences and things they'd never shared at work, like how somebody treated them at um, at a conference or how somebody treated them in the elevator or how somebody assumed that they were catering staff when they were the keynote speaker at a big event, things like that. Like all those yeah. stories that you hear from, from what we call white collar workers. Right. And so he was like, Oh, so many people were just like, yeah, that makes sense. Like they were like, like they thought they were like, that's ridiculous. And also sounds totally normal. Like yeah. it was. And so for somebody, even these people who in a pretty diverse workplace, I got to say, but they've never talked about this stuff before. Cause it's so loaded and, um, scary. And we just, I think sometimes we just want to keep things pleasant in, in, in at least I know for myself, sometimes in a relationship, right, a friendship or a romance, um, uh, my instinct is I just want to keep things nice. I just yeah. want to. But, you know, as Patrick Swayze taught us in the hit film Roadhouse, like you're nice <laughs> until it's time to not be nice. And sometimes yeah. you need to not be nice. Yeah, I feel like I haven't been nice this week and it's felt really good. It's great. I love <laughs> seeing you not be nice and just be like, listen, <laughs> fuck face. <laughs> <laughs> what um what kind of mask did you wear like what was the pattern did you go for a pattern tell me about your your fashion and <laughs> you went to the protest because oh, <laughs> you're uh, carrying my... an extra load I'm wondering about this for pregnant ladies like who are getting out there like what are, is it a moo -moo? what happens I went to a very chill uh socially distant it was just standing on the street you know, I felt so my friend, my friend, you know, commented, she was really cute. She's like, oh, you're teaching your baby how to march before she walks. And I'm like, well, I didn't really move that much. My feet are very <laughs> swollen. Um, but yeah, I had a mask on and I stayed, I only stood next to my husband, my friend, and we were only there like an hour. And it was just one of those things of like standing on the street, holding signs, people honked. 
we made sure to pick something that was very, I mean, I, you know, coronavirus aside, pregnancy aside, I've gone to a few protests and I, I have panic attacks. Like I can't, and I don't really have like panic attacks aren't really my thing. I'm more of a crier. Uh, I'm more of a collapse on the floor crier person. But that's but, a release too. That's a that's your body yes. and your heart, mind, soul releasing stress in that way. Right. But as far I like concerts, like I never go in the middle up front where the crowd is. Like I can't um, handle any place where I feel trapped. Oh, like I need like, a side seat at the movies. I need to be able to go yeah. and pee. Oh, I, I mean, need to yeah. like, <laughs> I need to relate. clock. Totally. Yeah. I need yeah. to clock the exits as soon as I walk into a place. Yeah. And like, I'm not, that's I'm very not, important. Yeah. I'm not agoraphobic. It's, it's more just, um, I once, I, I mean, it's, it's for a lot of reasons, but I remember being in London when I was in college and <laughs> I was literally, it's comical though, but I was walking down the street and then I saw people with steel drums coming toward me. And I was like, huh, I wonder what's going on. And before I knew it, I was like in the middle of a carnival parade. And it was very peaceful and beautiful, but I couldn't get out, nor did I have any plans to go to a carnival parade. So I was just like suddenly swooped up in the middle of this crowd being like, can anyone get me out, please? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I just being surrounded <laughs> by people is very even when it's joyful, it's overwhelming like yeah. for somebody who has issues with crowds. It's like and it's understandable because there's a part of us that goes into fight, flight or freeze because at some point, you know, our brains received the message that um, we need to be on guard. We need to be vigilant. We need to always be able to run away if necessary. So that ha that can happen in the mall. Like it's it doesn't yeah. happen. It's not, you know, for somebody who hasn't experienced it, it feels like not a rational response. But it kind of is using the internal logic of our brains and how our brains evolved for whatever reason. Like our, to our brains, yes, it is entirely rational to be like, oh, no, no, I need to see the exits. Yeah. And some <laughs> and, people, I mean, the thing is, some people really remember when like Occupy Wall Street was happening. Mm -hmm. And I was like, man, I, I wish I was one of those people that wanted that could do it. And I remember really beating myself up about it. But there are people that really like... I, I think can thrive in those environments. Like Absolutely. Love to be out there on the front lines. And like, it sucks because I feel like I, you know, a lot of times protesting ends up being a spectator sport for me. Cause I'm like on the sidelines, but I will say this. Um, what I learned when I went out the other day is like, if you are somebody who is, you know, immunocompromised or pregnant or has terrible anxiety and can't go for whatever reason, or you just feel scared, like, you know, um, those peaceful protests are great. Also just like driving by and honking. Yeah. Like, everyone who drove by and honked, like got us excited. You could put water bottles in your car and hand out water to people. Um, I know some people today are outside, uh, Kyle Ayers and Kenny DeForest are outside dynasty type writer today, like cooking hot dogs for protesters. So like That's there are so great. You yeah, can nurture, so you can nurture them. You can be a, like a superhero sidekick. Yeah, like if I, if there were protests going outside my door, I would be making pasta, but like there aren't. 
Um, I don't. So. There's a. I don't know if you can see the the pasta machine that's right there. The pasta maker oh, in my dirty ass kitchen that's pasta? right there. Listen, oh I keep it there and it makes me feel better. Have I used it recently? No, but I use. It's a stress relief because it reminds me of like you know making pasta when I was really really little with like my grandma or my great grandma or my great aunt. So it's you know it's a good stress relief. But yeah, there are different ways to be of use to be supportive. And it's okay if you're not out there in the streets. Like I was saying the other day, every movement needs secretaries. Every movement needs administrative assistance, signal boosts, money. If someone needs me to book a fundraiser or, you know, have a conversation with an asshole, I I can do those things, you know, like I'll make the calls. I'll do all that. But, uh, yeah, I don't even really like music festivals. Me neither. I don't want to go to Coachella. Get out of here. No. Like, nope. I For for Baychella, I would have cons- I considered it, but I was like, I can't. I can't do it. I'll watch it on online later. And that's, yeah. that's <laughs> okay. And people yeah. often go like, but you're a performer. You've spoken in front of big crowds. And it's like, yeah, I have control or the illusion of it. I'm on stage by myself with oh, a microphone. Yeah. They're mm-hmm. sitting down. I, I even get a special place to go called the green room. And I might yeah. even get a special exit <laughs> yep. where I can like, there's not a lot of people around me. Um. Well, I wanted to ask, what are some ways in which you are relieving stress right now? Like whatever it may be, what works for you? Um. Well, I about mm, three, four years ago, I think it was, I started... Uh, every morning, um, I don't look at a screen for the first 30 to 60 minutes. I'm awake. That's awesome. Um, and, uh, it was suggested to me and I started with like 20 minutes and 30 minutes. And now it's like, for the most part, it's an hour unless it's like, you know, I might wake up, look at my phone. If there's not like 10 texts from a family member, you know, then there's no reason for me to look at anything right away. Um, and, and so I'll meditate for at least 10 minutes every morning, sometimes longer, make breakfast, really try to like be in the moment as I'm making breakfast. Like, you know, my sister, who's a therapist, like I remember her teaching me like, and if you ever feel anxious, like you like in your head go, I'm holding the coffee pot, I'm pouring the coffee, you know, like, Really narrate it. That's cool. Yeah. And, um, and then it's really nice. Um, and then like, you know, then when I'm eating breakfast after I've meditated and, you know, taken the dog for a walk and all that stuff, that's when I'll open up. Cause once I open up my phone or laptop, that's it for the day. Um, and so that I think has been a huge, I know it's been a huge life changer, like, cause meditating literally changes the waves of your brain. Um, and I think it's also helped me in pregnancy, like breathe through any pain or discomfort and just like really get to know my body better. Um, specifically during quarantine, uh, we'll see again, part of it is also being pregnant because everyone's like, go take a bath. And so (laughs) I don't know if it's quarantine baths or if it's also like pregnancy, but like that is one of the perks of being pregnant is I'll just be like, oh, I'm kind of sleepy. And someone's like, take a nap, girl, like lay down. And so I feel like I have extra permission. Yeah. Um, but I do want those things to carry over even when I'm not pregnant. 
of just like listening to my body and stuff. So, so yeah, meditating first hour of being awake, no screens, um, baths if you have access to it. Um, I try to go for a walk every day, even if it's just around the block with the dog, um, talking to people, journaling. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, social media, I try to not keep it on my phone. That's a good idea. Um, so I don't, I, I have Twitter on my phone right now just because I've been like obsessed this week, but, um, I try to not have any of the apps on my phone and that way I have to like go through the extra step of going through the internet to get on. And sometimes by the time I start doing all that, I'm like, Oh, what am I even looking for? You know? So, um, reducing that is really helpful. I got more conscious about it this week and I looked at, um, I don't have uh, Twitter on my phone right now, which is good. I have Instagram because I have, um, I do digital marketing. So I have a social marketing, social media client, but um, I was looking at it and I was like, wow, last week I was nine hours a day and starting (gasps) Uh, on Sunday, I was like, nope. So I think Sunday was like three or four hours and that'll probably be what today is if not less which is cool um and it's just so much it's so much better if I really want to engage I can log and I certainly do like log in on my laptop but yeah it's just uh, it's better to limit it there are some great things about it like I get educated and learn and sometimes it's because I'm getting checked on something and other times it's just because I'm curious and I'm looking for information um but you know, there there has to be a balance with it for sure. That said, where can people find you online? <laughs> <laughs> and I also want to say, like, you know, it, it's always such a tricky thing when it comes to self-care stuff, because I do know that a lot of self-care is a privilege. Mm-hmm. You know, like not everyone has a bathtub. <laughs> I certainly haven't always had a bathtub. Um or the time to maybe you have a job where you can't afford to not look at your phone for the first hour right. when you're awake. So like I acknowledge that, but I would say if I could, if I was going to like push, if I was going to be a really strong advocate of anything, it would be the meditation thing. Even if it's, I started with three minutes a day. Yeah. And it's I felt- free and, and you can do it. You can use an app. I use Headspace, but you can use, you don't have to use an app. You know, this has existed for gazillions of years for a reason. It, it does work. And you find, you find the method, the approach that that's good for you. Some people really like TM. Some people like guided Chanting. mindfulness meditation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like Tara whatever Brock works. is a great, she was like my entry into it. It's Tara Brock, she has a podcast. It's free on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And um, she has lectures, but she also has meditations. And, you know, they vary from like six minutes to 15 minutes. And yeah, I just think that's what I would encourage people to do. It feels um, great because you're not there with her in like Maryland or wherever she's recording at that time. But you do get to hear the sounds of people kind of adjusting and breathing. And that that's cool because you feel connected to or at least I do. Like when I listen to her podcast, I feel connected to other people. Yes, for sure. Yeah. But anyways, um, where can you find me? Um, Mm -hmm. On Twitter, it's just Julia Rossi, G-I-U-L-I-A-R-O-Z-Z-I. And then on Instagram, I had to add a Ms. before it, MS, Julia Rossi, because some girl in Italy has Julia Rossi, even though she hasn't posted since 2015. 
It's okay. I get Sarabenincasas <laughs> who are in Brazil. They're usually in Brazil, South Africa, Australia. They're like diaspora, <laughs> Italian diaspora people. <laughs> Occasionally, they're actually in Italy, but usually they're like overseas somewhere. Um, so yes, that's why I'm Sarah J. Benincasa. Well, Julia, this has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for Thank spending so this much. time. Thank you, friend. Bye. And that was my chat with Ms. Julia Rossi. I hope you follow her online and get to know her work there. By the time this podcast is out, it will either be the day or the probably the day before. I don't know. Um, the two-year anniversary of the last time I took a drink of alcohol. And that's not my sobriety date. My sobriety date is later. Um, but my no booze date is this very week. So it's exciting to be recording this podcast. And it's also definitely interesting for me this week because there have been moments that have given me pause to think about how far I've come, but how far I have to go. I read a quote and I don't remember from whom it comes. And the quote was something to the effect of this. Your life is the process of training your soul. And I thought that about sums it up for me. This lifetime is the process of training my soul to be kinder, to be more compassionate, to be more thoughtful, to be more patient, to be quicker, to sincerely apologize when I fuck up, to be quicker to draw a boundary when I feel unsafe or when somebody is being inappropriate or just wasting my time. I spent a lot of time beating myself up for not finishing my young adult book proposal yet, not finishing my pilot that I want to write that I have outlined yet. But the truth is, it's okay. There's other stuff going on. And I don't just mean the pandemic. And I don't just mean tons of protests in all 50 states against police brutality against structural racism, this great awakening that many people are having, I think myself included, beginning to unlearn things we didn't realize we had learned. And I think it's intersectional. I think it also extends to ways in which perhaps we regard LGBTQIA people, especially this month, Pride Month, Happy Pride Month, uh, and the way that pride intersects with the virulent racism experienced by some of the very founders of the gay rights movement. Martha P. Johnson among them, but that's just one of many names. Anyway, I share this to say that if you are behind on things, if you had this goal of writing a book or redoing your whole house and you can't 
or you haven't done it yet, it's okay. It's all right. It's not meant to emerge from you yet. Maybe you got other stuff to handle. I'm doing 90 sobriety meetings in 90 days. As I'm recording this, I've done like 75 in 80 days, something like that. So, you know, I'll be doubling up. I did two today. Um, and, and I want to do that because that was a hard thing for me to do. I don't like sitting and listening to other people for that long. <laughs> you know, each meeting's about an hour long. So I've, I guess I've done 75 hours of sobriety meetings in the past three months. I don't necessarily love the Zoom interface, although I do appreciate it and I like it more than having to schlep to go out to a meeting. I, I don't always like listening to people's stories. You know, I love, in general, I love listening to people's stories if it's on my terms, if I get to do it for a podcast or I get to interview people on stage at a panel. That, I love that. That's fun. But just listening to random people tell their tales, tales of woe sometimes, tales of success sometimes, I fight against that. I resist it. But I've been doing it anyway. So I just started. I said, okay, if I can do this 90 and 90 meetings thing, 90 and 90 meetings, I can't pronounce anything tonight. That's fine. Maybe I can do 90 workouts in 90 days, not all intense ones. Like some days, rest days, it'll just be gentle stretching because I need that anyway. I'm I'm in a lot of back pain much of the time. I've gotten used to it. It's been going on since I was a teen. So I, yeah, I used to treat it with alcohol, among other things. And now I don't have that. So I got to learn other things. And I said to myself, if I can do 90 of these freaking meetings in 90 days, and sometimes I even talk in them, I don't always enjoy that either, but I do it and it's super helpful, <laughs> but mostly I listen. Well, then I could probably do this thing and I can do it at home and nobody can see me and I can use, I'm using the sweat app. My trainer is Kelsey. Um, I really like yoga with Adrian. A-D-R-I-E-N-E, Adrienne Mishler, Yoga with Adrienne. She's got a bunch of free stuff. I happen to be a, a member of her Find What Feels Good, like online website subscription thing. And then I've got the Peloton that I should probably get on. <laughs> I uh, That I'm paying off every month. So this is a bit of a ramble, obviously. Just to say... That if you're like, I can't fucking do this thing that I decided I was going to do, it's all right because you can do other stuff. You can do hard things. Maybe you're just not supposed to do the thing you want to do right now in your brain. Maybe there's something else that's calling your attention because your body needs it or your mind needs it, your soul needs it, your family needs it, your future you needs it. It's okay. And I'm obviously saying this because I'm saying it to myself too. We got to not beat ourselves up so much. You can do other awesome things. Maybe just not that awesome thing. Also, please get rest and drink enough water. If you're out protesting, wear that mask and also drink water. Wear sunscreen. Wear a hat if that's appropriate. Well, I said that we would get to a breathing exercise and we will. 
And by the way, once again, want to shout out the Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash Sarah Benincasa. So this breath is the three, four, five breath, which is exactly as simple as it sounds. It's inhale for three, hold for four, exhale for five. And we're going to do three rounds of that. But first I want to talk about how you, you breathe. Now, I am assuming in this case that you are not dealing with um, any kind of medical issues that are going to make this difficult for you. If you are, I want you to make extra sure to talk to your doctor about modifications for breath work, particularly if you are dealing with, say, recovering from a respiratory illness, which I know many people are. Also, if it is not safe feeling for you to close your eyes. Just know that you can keep your eyes open. You can look at your cat. You can focus on a candle flame. You can look at a beautiful piece of artwork. You can just look at something familiar, a teddy bear, whatever it is. My aim here is not to get you into an altered state of consciousness, although that is possible through breath work and very exciting. I mean, Lord knows I won't be going on an ayahuasca journey anytime soon as a sober lady. So... Uh, I'm very excited to know that you can alter your consciousness through breath work, but that's not what we're doing here. What we're doing here is practicing briefly a very simple technique that you can practice to interrupt the fight, flight, or freeze response when you go into a panic attack or even just to ease your anxiety. It can also distract you if you're bored in a meeting. Nobody will be able to tell that you're doing this. And it feels good. But I want you to try and get that breath down into your belly so that your diaphragm inflates, expands. And then when you exhale, do it slowly and let that belly slowly deflate. So let's aim to not do shallow, high breathing. Let's aim to go a bit deeper. So let's inhale for three. Hold for four. Two, three, four. Exhale. Two, three, four, five. Now let's wait and let's do it again. Inhale for three. Exhale for five. Two, three, four, five. Let's hold in this empty space for just a moment. And now inhale for three. Hold for four, two, three, four. Exhale, two, three, four, five. And let it all out. Let's take a deep breath together. And exhale slowly. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so proud of you for taking the time to do a little breath work. Or maybe you're just letting the podcast play and it'll auto play a different episode after. Either way, I appreciate you. Thank you for being here. Please, if you get a chance, go rate the podcast nice and high. 
on Apple or Stitcher or I always think Spotify lets you do that and I don't think it does. Please write a little review. It really means a lot. I love to see the positive reviews. They make me very happy. And um, it's nice because it gives people a taste of what they could get into if they choose to listen to the podcast. But I also want to remind you that there are great resources out there, some of which are free. Yoga with Adrian on YouTube is free. Um, Sharon Salzberg, S-A-L-Z-B-E-R-G. She was an earlier guest on the podcast. She has many offerings online that are free. Also check out the podcast Therapy for Black Girls, which is free. Uh, I also suggest listening to Tara Brock, T-A-R-A. Last name B-R-A-C-H. You heard Julia talk about her in the interview. Tara Brock is great. And there are a lot of other resources out there. And if you're listening to this podcast, I'm assuming that you're listening on your own phone or your own computer. And so you have access to the internet. In which case, there's some great stuff out there. Thank you so much for being here. Shout out to... NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, as well as the Trevor Project. Those are great places to go have a look, to check out, especially if you're struggling with mental health issues. They can help you. They can point you in the right direction. I hope that listening to this podcast has been peaceful for you, has been restorative, has been nurturing, has been loving, has been informative, or this has been a nice distraction while you cleaned your house. I like you. I love you. I'm grateful to you. Take good care.